Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Ruth 1, 8 through 17, 2, 1 through 3, 4, 9 through 10, 13 through 22, and Matthew 1, 5 through 6a. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eye I find favor. Naomi say, said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was woke, working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Milan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Milan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her, in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and then named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family of Perez, family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Am Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Great job, Hannah. Yeah, yeah. that was very long. Lots of long names, too. Thanks for that. So we're continuing in a series that we started several months ago where we've been looking. It's called The Matriarchs. We've been looking at the women who are in Jesus' line. And we've been uh, doing that because, in part because uh, during ancient times, genealogies oftentimes functioned as resumes. And when you think about a resume, if you're, uh, you know, interviewing for a job and you're putting your resume together, what you're doing is you're trying to highlight the best of your past experience uh, that, uh, that shows your employer uh, all of your strengths and abilities. And the last thing that you would do on a resume is to make a resume of all of your failures, uh, all the ways that you didn't meet expectations, all the reasons you lost your prior job. And yet when you look at the resume of Jesus and his genealogy, while there certainly are included in there very impressive names like King David and others, but it's striking that Matthew, the writer of the gospel, includes the names of those who would have been disreputable. And what we've been doing is we've been going through some of the stories in particular, noting the, the very few times where the, uh, the gospel of Matthew mentions the women who were part of Jesus' line. And that would have been a very unusual practice. It would have been the men who were prominent, impressive, and strong. And yet Matthew makes it a point to include these women. And we've been looking at each of those stories uh, to show us what it teaches us about who Jesus is uh, and the kingdom that he comes to usher in. Today, we are going to be looking at the story of Ruth. And Ruth is an entire book of the Bible. So my challenge is to try to, in the next half hour or so, uh, preach a sermon on an entire book of the Bible. Uh, but the story of Ruth and how it informs who our understanding of who Jesus is. So as we dip into this story, you may not know this, but the story of Ruth actually takes us into a little town in Israel called Bethlehem. And each of these stories, uh, or each of the chapters of this book in Ruth, highlights a key character. So what I want us to do is kind of quickly march through each of the chapters and look at, the look at the character that each chapter highlights. So we'll be looking at three characters and then a fourth, who I think is the point of Ruth chapter 4. Okay, so let's start in Ruth chapter 1. The highlight of Ruth chapter 1 is this woman named Naomi. I'm going to call her the woman of sorrow. And so here's where the story of Ruth starts. At the time of Judges, and if you know anything about the time of Judges, it was a time that is described in the Bible as a, a season where everybody in Israel just did whatever the heck they wanted. Uh, so you can kind of think of it as pre-monarchy. This is probably more of a federation of agrarian tribes. But it was kind of a time of chaos. And during that time, a pretty severe famine hits the nation of Israel, and people are looking at very serious poverty, even starvation. So Elimelech, uh, who is the husband of Naomi, decides to take his wife Naomi and his two sons to a foreign land called Moab. Now Moab was a Canaanite uh, tribe and very much one of the enemies of the people of God. And we'll look at, look at that a little bit later. But he takes his family to Moab because the famine is less severe there, hoping that he would leave uh, this place of poverty and come into a place of abundance. As they make the move, we're not told a lot of the details, but Elimelech dies. And now you have Naomi left in a nation whose a language she does not speak with just her two young sons. And somehow she's able to make those ends meet. Her sons grow up. They marry daughters. Uh, they marry wives. And uh, in 10 years, both of her sons die as well. And so here's Naomi. When we meet her, she's in a place of desperation. Uh, she's shattered by grief and loss. She's in a foreign land where she does not know anybody. 
where she does not speak the language, where she doesn't fully understand the customs. She worships a God that is not worshipped by anybody else in that land. And so here is Naomi in a place of utter isolation, uh, utter desperation, facing the prospects of abject poverty. And so you can imagine if you're Naomi, you have a very hard decision in front of you to say, what do we do? What am I going to do from here? And so Naomi makes a decision that she needs to go back to her people in Israel. She hears that the famine has lifted and that God has returned to Israel and that there was now abundance there. So she decides to go back. But what she does is actually remarkable. Rather than dragging her daughters-in-law to come back with her, she tells her daughters-in-law, I release you of your obligation." Uh, She knows she has every right to demand that her daughters-in-law come back to the nation of Israel, but she doesn't want them to go through what she's been through, to be in a land where they're unknown, to be in a land where they're disconnected, where they don't speak the language. So he tells her daughters-in-law, I release you from the obligation. I'm not going to have any new sons for you to marry. There's nothing for you back there. She also knows there's a lot of hostility between Israel and Moab, and she says, I can't ask that of you. I love you too much. And so she lays down her rights as her mother-in-law. And she releases Orpah and Ruth from their familial responsibilities. Orpah takes her up on the offer. And a lot of times you can read this and you're like, man, Orpah just kind of bounced on her mother-in-law. But let's not blame her. If you and I were in that situation, knowing going back with Naomi meant you were committing yourself to a hard life for the rest of your life. Orpah says thank you with much gratitude, with much tears. She goes back to her family. But Ruth, Ruth sees Naomi, this old woman, who is going back to a land now as a widow with no husband and no sons, even back in the land of her people, she was still looking at a life filled with poverty. She had no land. She had no prospects. Uh, in that, in that uh, society, you needed the men to do the work in the fields in order to create the economic value. So she knew she was going back, but she was going back to a life of poverty. And Ruth looks at her and she says, I can't just leave her to this life. And so Ruth sees all that she's committing to, And she tells her mother-in-law, I will cling to you. And in a very beautiful, one of the most moving scenes in all of Scripture, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, she says, don't urge me to leave you. This is verse 16 of chapter 1. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. It is a remarkable commitment of love, of faithfulness, of fidelity. Now, Naomi realizes that she's not going to be able to convince Ruth out of her decision, and so she allows her to come back. They come back to Bethlehem, and there's a scene that we weren't able to read to you, but I, can, I definitely want to, would uh, recommend that you read the entire book of Ruth, just four chapters. They come back to the city, and you get the sense that the women of the city see Naomi, and they say, is that she looks so different. What's happened? Uh, you get the sense that the women see her that she left with so much fullness, and now she comes back, and she's just a husk of who she was. And so they come back and say, Naomi, is that you? And Naomi says, I'm not the same person that left you. I've lost everything. And so she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. It's a name that means sweetness or, or even beauty, a pleasantness. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. That's not who I am. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. The Lord has dealt Bitterly, bitterly with me. I left this place full, full of prospects, full of hope, full of possibility, and I've come back completely empty. And this was her welcome back into her hometown of Bethlehem. Now I want to pause here and just make one quick observation. It's easy to miss 
both in this story and I think in our lives, the truth that in the face of even calamity, in the face of hardship and tragedy and suffering, that God has not left Naomi. Naomi says, God has dealt bitterly with, bitterly with me. And you can imagine if you're in her shoes saying, why are you doing this? We've left everything. Why have I lost everything? God, why would you allow such terrible things to happen to us? And here she is back in Bethlehem. But the, the detail that I think is important for us to notice is that as long as the narrator's eye is on Naomi, we know that the eye of God remains on Naomi. Now, you might be here and you might resonate with Naomi's story because you feel like you've lost a lot this past year. Uh, you've, you've asked yourself multiple times, if there is a God, why does he do nothing? You look at your life and all you see is struggle after struggle after struggle, and you might say, there is no God, or if there is a God, he has certainly left me. And I want to tell you this, that as long as your story is unfolding, the eye of God has not left you. Your story is being told, that God has remained near to you. And the same is true for Naomi. In this moment, she feels like she's all alone. And yet, here we are in East Harlem, more than 3,000 years later, retelling the story of Naomi. Why? Because there was a God whose eye was not leaving her. There was a God whose eye had not left her. Look, I don't know how many Instagram followers you have, but even if you have a million no one's going to be telling your story in 3,000 years. I don't care if your name's on buildings. Even if your name's on buildings, no one's going to be telling your story in 3,000 years. And here's Naomi, a woman who in this moment says, I've lost everything. I'm emptied. There's nothing of value left in me. And yet here we are 3,000 years later, God ensuring that this story is told. God having plans for her life far beyond what she could have ever have possibly imagined. And she gets a little taste of that too. By the end of the story, Ruth, uh, uh, or Naomi, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14, these same women who came and said, is this Naomi? What has happened to you? These same women at the end of the story said this. The women said to Naomi, this is verse 14 of chapter 4, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. The women celebrate with Naomi and say, the Lord has never left you. He has done far more for you than you could ever have imagined. And this in many respects is the message of Advent. Advent is both an arriving and an awaiting. It's the arrival of the goodness of God, but it's also an awaiting in the midst of our brokenness and our fears and our sorrow and our suffering. That Advent is something that happens to us in the dark as we remember God's arrivals, but we're also awaiting his coming. Wherever those areas of awaiting are for you, the message of Naomi, the message of this woman of sorrow is that the eye of God has not left you, that there are arrivals yet to come, that there's a story that God is writing in your life. But if you come back to the story, Naomi is back in Bethlehem, and she knows that she has no prospects for work. She has no prospects for economic uh, stability. But what she does know is she knows the gleaning laws of Israel. And I think this is the main reason why she comes back. If you're interested, the gleaning laws are found in Leviticus chapter 19. But essentially it says this, 
It tells uh, wealthy landowners in Israel that when you go to harvest your, um, your crops, that you're not allowed to harvest all the way to the edge of your property. You actually have to leave the edges unharvested. And it also says that you can't go over your harvest a second time. So if you go through it once, you can't harvest to the edges, and you can't go over a second time to pick up the things that were left behind. And the purpose of those laws was to, to make sure that the wealthy landed kind of aristocracy that would emerge in Israel always had provision for the poor in mind. And so Naomi probably knows that law. She says, at least if we go back to Israel, we can at least glean off the land of others. And we can at least make some kind of living out of that. And so they go back, and Naomi tells Ruth to go and glean, and it turns out that Ruth gleans in the fields of Boaz, and that's our second character. So that was chapter one. Am I moving along okay? Nope, got to move faster. Two, uh, the first one was, uh, was Naomi, the woman of sorrow. The second character to look at today is Boaz, the righteous insider. And we meet him mostly in Ruth chapter 2. Uh, and we, we learn in Ruth chapter 2 that uh, Boaz there is told, we're told in verse 1 that he was a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. Now Boaz is a social insider in Israel. So everything that would make you an insider in that culture, he was. So uh, he was male and not female. Uh, he was wealthy. Uh, and he was also an Israelite. And so everything about Boaz puts him right at the center of that society. Now Boaz... He hears a story of Naomi and Ruth, and he kind of marvels at the faithfulness of this woman, Ruth. And he comes home one day, and he greets all the workers in his field. And he says, God bless you. And he learns, as he talks to the workers in this field, that Ruth has actually started to glean in his own field. And so he marvels at kind of the providence of that. And instead of just allowing Ruth to stay on the edges, Boaz goes to her and offers her this incredible welcome. She says, look, Ruth. Don't just glean after my harvesters go through the field. I want you to harvest alongside with my harvesters. So don't just wait for the leftovers that get left behind. He invites her to come in, harvest alongside my own workers. You'll get the same or the best crops that my workers get for my own household. And not only that, he says, come into my home and eat what they're eating, drink what they're drinking. He says, you're going to be, uh, is a dangerous place for a Moabite here in Israel. Stay with my people and they'll protect you. So he opens up the home of his household and he essentially draws Ruth into his own family. And he says, eat with us, drink with us, let us protect you, let us, let us provide for you uh, in the midst of your poverty. Now here's, I want to pause here again too because I just want to reflect again a little bit on the beauty of these gleaning laws. Because when you think about it, <clears throat> The gleaning laws were unique for a number of reasons. So first, the gleaning laws actually required the rich to provide for the poor. Or if I say it another way, the gleaning laws didn't leave providing for the poor, didn't leave that to the feelings of generosity in the rich. God says, no, in, in Israel, even if you don't feel like you want to be generous with your material possessions to the poor, you still have to provide. And so there was a legal provision that actually required that the poor be cared for by those who had means. But it did more than that because the gleaning laws don't provide charity for the poor. The gleaning laws provide work for the poor. Because the law isn't, hey, you know, if you're wealthy, you know, harvest as much as you can. 
You know, maximize your profits as best as you can and then make sure you to give generously. That wasn't the law. And I think in churches today, that's how we tend to view our kind of our economic discipleship. The law was actually, no, don't maximize profits. And instead, leave things on the field that create work for the poor. Because there's something about the dignity of work that allows somebody to say, yes, we find ourselves in this situation in a tough moment, but I can find work. I can do good. I can make a good living. I can make an honest living. I can go out there and provide something constructive to this society. And so these gleaning laws take that into account. And they say, no, it's not enough just to give in charity. It's create the work. But the gleaning laws do a third thing, which I think makes it uh, brilliant. The third thing that it does is that it actually weaves the poor into real human community with the rich. Because you had the poor working the same fields as the working class. And if you look at the story with Boaz, even the owners of the fields were in that field. And now you have a social environment because of these gleaning laws where the very poor, where the working class, and where the landed rich could all be together and break bread together. It re-knits the poor into human community, whereas in our, in our modern situation, we oftentimes, we expend a lot of energy to make sure that I never actually have to spend any time with someone who's not in my economic class. We expend a lot of our resources to ensure that. But these gleaning laws re-knit this human community. And what happens when you re-knit relationships like that? What does that create? It creates opportunities. It creates learning. It creates a sharing of information and resources. You see now a new community that's functioning, and now everyone is concerned for one another. It's a radical law, a law that in many respects I think would heal a lot of our social ills today. But Boaz observes all these gleaning laws, and in so doing, that's where he meets Ruth. Now, the word that the Bible uses to describe a person like Boaz is righteous. And so that's why I call him the righteous insider. Now, when we hear the word righteous, we normally think of the word self-righteous. So righteous sounds negative to us in our culture today. Uh, Or at best, you might say use righteous to mean my personal ethics, kind of like my private morality. But righteousness in the Bible is always and inevitably social. What I mean by that is this. Someone who is unrighteous is willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. Someone who is righteous is willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. And so the concept of righteousness is not a personal individual morality before a holy God. It is that, but it's not merely that. Righteousness is always social to say, can I view the things that I have not only to benefit myself, but to benefit those around me? That's what righteousness was. Uh, It's a profoundly social concept. Someone who's righteous doesn't shy away from power or wealth or influence. Someone who's righteous knows that they must steward their power, their privilege, and their wealth for the good of the most vulnerable. That's a righteous person. And so the Bible, when it talks about righteousness, it's talking about the kinds of folks who will steward what God has given them for the good of others. What if Christians were known for righteousness in our day and age today? This kind of righteousness. 
What if Christians were known for stewarding their political power for the good of the most vulnerable, uh, stewarding their wealth for the good of the most vulnerable, stewarding their work to create work for the most vulnerable? What if Christians were known not for the belief that says, well, I acquired all of my wealth ethically, therefore it's all mine, and instead the wealth that I have is meant to be used for righteousness, for the benefit of the entire community. Isn't this incredible? This is what Boaz does, and he does it instinctively. Isn't that incredible? And you've got to wonder, like, how does Boaz become a person like this? How did this happen? Actually, we kind of get a clue to that. If you put up Matthew 1, 5, we kind of get a clue as to how it is that Boaz becomes a person like this. 1, 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Were you here with us last week? Rahab, the prostitute, the Canaanite. I like to imagine Boaz being raised as a little boy, by his mother Rahab, who was once the prostitute, a Canaanite, who brought into worship of the God of Israel. There's a reason why Boaz has become the kind of man that he had. It's because he had a mother like a woman, a mother who was a woman like the woman Rahab was. A woman from the margins. A woman who knew what it was like to be poor. A woman who knew what it was like to be an outsider. And so it's Boaz, this righteous insider. So chapter 1, Naomi, the woman of sorrow. Chapter 2, Boaz, the righteous insider. The last two ones are quicker. Let me run through them quickly. 3, Ruth, the self-giving outsider. And this is Ruth chapter 3. Now here's what's interesting. As great as Boaz is, this book is not called the book of Boaz. It's called the book of Ruth. He's not the hero. Ruth is is the hero. And if you stop and you reflect on that, this is absolutely astounding that we even have this book. So for all the reasons that Boaz was an insider, Ruth, for all those reasons, an outsider. Where Boaz was male, she's female. Where Boaz was wealthy, she's poor. Where Boaz was an Israelite, she's a Moabite. So she's a triple outsider, an economic, gender, and ethnic outsider. And so it's absolutely remarkable that this book would even exist in our scriptures today because most, because, uh, it's, it's not written from the position of an Israelite. Now, here's the insight that I want us to, don't want us to miss. Most of the Bible is actually written from the margins. The two maybe possible exceptions to that statement are possibly the Psalms that are written by King David and the Proverbs that are written by King Solomon. Aside from those two books, every other book of the Bible is written from the margin. That is utterly astounding because in every other culture the gods of that culture were always identified with the strong they were the gods of the kings the pharaohs the generals the philosophers the heroes and the gods were always a system that was used to justify and reinforce social hierarchies why do you obey the emperor because the emperor is a son of god to disobey the emperors, to disobey God. So it was used to reinforce these social hierarchies. But the God of the Bible is not the God of kings and warriors and philosophers. The God of the Bible is the God of the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant. He's not the God of pharaohs. He's the God of the exodus. 
liberating enslaved peoples. He's not the God of empires. He's the God of the exiles, living under the oppression and occupation of the empire. The Bible is utterly unique in human history because it's the only scriptures that are the literature of the margins. Now, here's what this means. For you and I, if we want to see the world the way that God sees the world, don't look over the shoulder of the powerful and the wealthy. If you want to see the world the way that God sees the world, look over the shoulder of the poor and the vulnerable and the forgotten and the oppressed. That's what that means for us. And so here's Ruth, this triple outsider, and yet we have the story where this outsider is the hero of this entire story. And for a Moabite coming into Israel, the Moabites were particularly hated by Israel. Uh, There's this passage in Deuteronomy 23 that the first time I read it, I'm like, does this exist? Is this really in the Bible? And it's like, man, they were really mad at the Moabites. They really did not like these guys. But here's what it says, Deuteronomy 23. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, son of Beor, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all, prosperity all of your days forever. What? You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, for you are sojourners in his land. But apparently you can abhor the Moabites. And so here is uh, a Ruth, a Moabite, and it makes her faithfulness to Naomi all the more astounding. When she says, I will go where you go, I will stay where you stay. Look, immigrants sacrifice a lot. They risk everything to come to a new country where they don't speak the language, where they know they'll be rejected, where they know they'll be on the margins. They risk a lot because they believe that they're coming to a better life. Ruth leaves all of that risks everything because she knows she's coming to a much worse life. She knows that's what she's committed to because of her love for Naomi. Ruth leaves her place of safety. She leaves her people. She leaves her place of belonging. And she comes to a people that she knows will respond to her with rejection, with ridicule, with suspicion, and even with physical Harm, and yet Ruth knows that in order for Naomi to live, I must risk everything. I must become a despised outsider. And she clung to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I will never leave nor forsake you. Nothing, not even death, will separate you from my love. And so Ruth comes back to Bethlehem. She gleans in these fields, and she discovers that the field that she's gleaning in is not just an insider, not just a righteous person, but is actually one of their guardian redeemers. Now, what does this mean? Let me do this really quickly. In Israelite law, if your family fell on hard times and you sold everything, there was a law, legal provision that said a close male relative, if they're willing to be generous with their funds, a, your closest male relative could buy up that land and therefore protect it and keep it for your community. Now, this situation was complicated by the fact that not only did they have to buy back the land, but they would also have to marry Ruth, a Moabite, 
And that was the situation that they were in. And Ruth, so she goes by night and she lays down by Boaz's feet. And she does something that would have taken a lot of courage, that was extremely risky, put her in an extremely vulnerable situation. She goes and she lays down by his feet and she ultimately says, will you be our guardian redeemer? Will you cover me with your clothing? Will you cover me uh, with a hem of your garment? And what does Boaz do? Boaz agrees to become her bridegroom. And what that means is he not only takes on the debt that she has owed and makes it his own, he absorbs the cost of her debt, but he also marries her. And what that means is now everything that he has, all of his wealth, all of his standing, all of his social favor, now becomes hers in an instant. And her entire life has changed because of a great bridegroom, because of a great guardian, because of a great redeemer. And that's where we read verse 4, 4 verse 15, where it says, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Ruth is the daughter-in-law who is better for Naomi than even seven sons. Here is this self-sacrificing outsider, Ruth, who's willing to leave her safety and comfort behind, to go to a people that will reject her, who will even threaten her harm, sacrifices everything so that Naomi can live. Does it sound like somebody else? And this leads to the fourth and final point. Ruth is interesting because here's this great little story, and yet it ends with another genealogy. So Ruth chapter 4 ends with this then is, a li- is the family line of Perez. Perez is the father of Hezron, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you say, well, why would you end a story like this with a genealogy? And actually scholars wrestle with that. They say, it doesn't make sense. It seems like it's out of place. Like why end this great little story with this genealogy? And of course the answer to that is that as beautiful as this story is, it's actually the story about someone who is still yet to come. That there's a child coming who would be the true guardian redeemer. There's a child coming who would truly be renowned in all of Israel, who would be our true restorer of life. That there's a child coming who, like Naomi, would be a man familiar with sorrow, a man who knows what it's like to be emptied of everything, a man who knows what it's like to refuse to consider his own rights as things to be grasped for his own advantage, someone who is familiar with sorrow and suffering. There was a child coming who was like Boaz, the righteous insider, the great bridegroom, who stewarded all the privileges of heaven and used it not for his own good but for our good when we were lost and poor and without hope. A great guardian redeemer, a great bridegroom who not only absorbed the debt of our sin but covered us in the garment of his own righteousness. There's a child coming who, like Ruth, was born an outsider, born in a manger, who's willing to sacrifice everything he had to leave the safety of heaven, left the safety of his father's home, and who came to a people, you and me, who he knew would reject him, would threaten him, and would ultimately crucify him. And yet he, like Ruth, clung to us 
when we were empty and bitter and angry. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even death itself cannot separate us. See, friends, the message of Advent is a story of arrivals and awaitings. This is a story of both. That if the story of Ruth started in a little town called Bethlehem, and if at every point in that story it points us to a child who is coming, it actually places us right back in this little town of Bethlehem where we have a gift of a Savior who has done far more for us than we could ever have asked him to do so that when we put our faith in him, we're covered in his garment, we're made righteous, we're forgiven of our debts, we stand before God as those who are beloved. So friend, this Advent season, let's come to Jesus, the true and better Ruth, the true and better Boaz, the true and better Naomi. Let's come to him and let's find our rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table now, Lord, would you remind us of the price that you were willing to pay to draw us in, to call us your own. That while we were empty and bitter and far from you, you said, I can't just let this person die in their despair. And instead you left heaven and you were rejected and crucified by us. Like we did that to you. Your body was broken, your blood poured out by our own hands. And you did all of that, Lord God, so that you could be our redeemer. You could be the restorer of our life. You would be our great bridegroom so that we can go from crushing poverty and be drawn into all the riches that are yours, covered in your garment of righteousness. So as we come to this table, Lord God, remind us that we are like Naomi, we are like Ruth, we are like Rahab, we are those who have been far from you. And yet by your grace, by your grace, you are proud to count us as part of your family tree. You're proud to tell our story because you came to love the poor and the weak, the vulnerable and the lost. And so we come to you in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.